Sorry, I'm moving the mic back and forth, so I need to pause. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate drone living in Eastern Europe, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian turned freelance book indexer and proofreader, also working on a novel while raising two boys with my husband and making PB&Js by the dozen. This week, we have a very special guest for Father's Day. We'll be interviewing my dad, Fred Allison. He is a military historian and a writer, both at work and in his spare time. His most recent book is We Were Going to Win or Die There, which is a book based on numerous oral history interviews that he did with the Marine Roy Elrod. This book recently won a Marine Corps Heritage Award. For a bit more on my dad, he was raised in West Texas on a family cotton farm. He graduated from Muleshoe High School in Muleshoe, Texas in 1968, then went on to attend the University of North Texas, majoring in secondary education, specifically around teaching history. Soon after he graduated, he entered the Marine Corps, and he was later a commissioned officer and then went to Navy Flight School. He became a Naval Flight Officer and was assigned to fly the F-4 Phantom aircraft. FYI, that's the plane that's in Top Gun. While he was in training in Yuma, Arizona, he met and married my mom, Martha, and after six and a half years of active duty, they returned to Texas and settled in Greenville, Texas. My dad's had a really wide and varied career. In Greenville, he taught in public schools, and then he worked as a manager in a local trucking company. But while he was doing that, he decided to follow his passion and start work on a master's degree in history, which he finished in 1995 from East Texas State University, which is now Texas A&M Commerce. We as a family then moved to Lubbock, Texas, where he worked on a PhD in military history at Texas Tech University. In 2000, he began working as an oral historian at the Marine Corps History Division, which some people describe as basically a dream job, and he's worked there since. We really enjoyed talking to him about everything, and especially the very inspirational stuff that he says later in the interview about why you should keep going and more or less how writing is a little bit like flying a fighter plane. I hope you enjoy this as much as we did. Happy Father's Day, Dad. Love you a lot. Dad, thanks for joining this special Father's Day edition of Marginally Podcast. My pleasure. And we are very excited to have you on this podcast. As you know, our podcast is about people who have a day job and who write on the side. So maybe you can tell us about your day job and about your outside work writing projects or other creative projects that you have. Sure thing. I'm a military historian and I currently work at one of the service universities. And what I my specialty is actually is doing uh, oral history. And all that that entails, actually, uh, it, it involves uh, doing quite a few oral history interviews with uh, service members. And then the uh, actually bigger part of my job is sort of managing the collection of oral history interviews that we have, which is a substantial collection of over 30,000 items that we have in this uh, in our oral history collection that is oral history program has been ongoing since 1965 but even though I'm a historian and have a PhD in history I spend most of my time uh, processing and getting oral histories uh, prepared for research or use and archiving them and I spend day after day in databases actually 
So I don't have an opportunity to do a lot of a lot of writing at work, although I could because my job, part of my job entails historical writing on military subjects. So that's my day job and been doing that for about 17 years now. And it's gone through, uh, it's, it's gone through various phases of my job where I do a lot of writing, then other times I don't. But where I'm at now is doing a lot of the administrative work and processing oral histories, which is, uh, which is very interesting, actually, um, to uh, get to deal with that, that subject matter. And then what about your outside work activities? So you actually write lots of things outside work. I have some writing projects uh, ongoing, some of them uh, large-scale writing projects, Others might be smaller scale projects. So, but yeah, I do writing, considerable writing off of the job. And you just had a book published that won a fancy award. Why don't you tell us about that? Okay. Yes, it won the award for best biography or autobiography of the year uh, for the year 2017-18. The award was from the uh, Marine Corps Heritage Foundation, and it was one of 17 that they award yearly, but it's pretty prestigious in those circles, so I was very happy, very honored. And I did a lot of that. I did a lot of that uh, work and writing on this book off the job. So... So yeah. how, what made you want to write the book? And the book, maybe just tell a short amount about what the book is about. And then, like, how you got the idea and why you stuck with it. As a course of my duty as an oral historian, I interview a lot of, uh, in my case, uh, Marines. And strange and very sort of funny how I uh, heard about this one Marine. It was actually through my family that lives in Texas and through distant relatives connections between our two families i heard about a marine older marine from a world war ii generation that lived in fredericksburg virginia where i live and suggested that uh, maybe i would talk to him so i went over and talked to this gentleman uh, his name is roy elrod and was just fascinated really from the beginning he had a remarkable memory but that spread out on his table his dining room table and he lived alone. He was a widower. His wife had died about uh, maybe five years previously. Anyway, he had a lot of his uh, documents and uh, photographs. And most interesting to me as a historian was letters that he had written from Pacific battlefields back to his family in Texas. So uh, we started doing an interview, and I ended up interviewing this gentleman, uh, Roy Elrod, for about over 30 hours of, of actual formal interviews, and then off tape, many, many more hours of just candid conversation. Plus, he gave me access to all of his papers. But he had a remarkable, remarkable memory, and he had served in the Marine Corps from 1940 all the way until 1961, but I was most interested in the World War II years. So uh, we talked about these battles that he had been in, Guadalcanal, Tarawa and Saipan. And if you know anything about military history or especially um, Marine Corps Navy history in World War II, you know that those are very significant. Some of the uh, most important battles are very, in a way, iconic for the Marine Corps. So uh, he was very, uh, had good detailed descriptions of those, but not too detailed. In other words, I got the feeling by doing the interviews with him that he, uh, he was trying very hard to be accurate, as accurate as possible, not over-dramatizing his story, but uh, really bringing, bringing out his memory and telling his story as best he could. So 
Anyway, I ended up interviewing him for about 30 hours and uh, decided that this would be a good book. So... Uh, and how long did it take you to write your book, Dad? project took five years. I did some of the work on my job as a historian, but then spent a lot of time off work, uh, off-duty hours doing the work also. And uh, what was really neat about doing this type of project because of where I work at the United States Marine Corps History Division, I have access to official records. And I was able to um, check his story against the official records and found that most of the time that he was accurate. And so we're thinking about, what, 60 years, mm. years from the uh, actual event. So he kept these memories alive in his mind. He was still very much engaged with the Marine Corps. As you know, Fredericksburg, Virginia is close to Quantico, Virginia, which is a big Marine Corps base. So he's still active with sort of veterans organizations and actually official Marine Corps kind of activities. So uh, he, had a, he had a great memory. And like I said before, he did not try to, I never felt like he was trying to embellish his stories that he was sincerely trying to tell it as accurately as possible. So that was encouraging to me to continue because as a historian, you know, accuracy and uh, actual historical event is premier in your mind to uh, recreate the, that event. You were telling me last night that some of your colleagues were not always totally supportive. And this is a little bit different than, I guess, what we often talk about on the job where you have like one job. It's completely mm -hmm. different from your creative work. You mm -hmm. have a little bit of overlap. But mm -hmm. what made me think it would be a good idea for us to for me to interview you is just because I'm so curious that you have this like you weren't totally encouraged to do this at work. It wasn't like you weren't allowed, but some people were not totally supportive, but you kept going. So right. I'm, I'm just curious about that. Right, because it was um, it was an official undertaking in a way. It was owned by, I guess you'd say it was owned by the government. I did a lot of the work on myself because I just was, I liked doing it. I mean, I was, uh, I, I was just personally involved with it. But to spend this much time on one person doing an interview of this length on one person was a little bit suspect. And uh, because I would often have to, uh, to go interview him, I would have to go to Fredericksburg. So it seemed like I was just leaving work <laughs> to get out of the office <laughs> to go do these interviews or whatever. So I guess there were some people that were thinking this is way too much time to spend on one person when there are hundreds or other people that you could be interviewing. But my, uh, my boss, the director of the history division at the time, Dr. Charles Niemeyer, from the very beginning, supported it and encouraged my effort in that direction. And from the very beginning, he said, this is going to be big. He had a good feeling about it. And uh, really, uh, he was, uh, I was very pleased that I was allowed to uh, spend that much time on this project. And it, and it worked out well. Uh, the, only, the only downside, I guess, was the gentleman that uh, the whole story's about passed away before the book was published. About, uh, he passed away about nine months before the book was published. So that was unfortunate. But he did know that the book was going to be published. And uh, so at least he, uh, he went to the grave knowing that. So you, you've always got a few different side projects going on like me. So this is, again, <laughs> this is something that I thought was really interesting. Like maybe it's a family trait. Grandmothers also often got a lot of projects going on, for example, or something. But I was thinking as well back to, I think one of the things that I've always thought about is you were working like 
in an office job and you decided that, you know, it was really your passion to go into history, to study history, to get your PhD. And that involved a lot of like creative or kind of semi-creative work outside of your day job, right? Mm -hmm. Like you had to do a lot of that in your spare time. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe like, I guess, what do you think motivates you to do all this stuff that you don't have to do? Uh, really, I don't have any other hobbies. So uh, there's, I don't have in my off-duty time, I don't have a lot of competition for my time. But yeah, what Olivia's talking about, I guess when she was maybe in junior high or even late elementary school, I did go back to school and work on my master's degree. And then when she was in high school, I was working on my Ph.D., and so I was always sitting around writing, and uh, a PhD in history involves a lot of writing. And I guess I always enjoyed that, that uh, just gravitated to doing that. And I do, I do think it's maybe a family talent. My mother uh, wrote a lot for our hometown newspaper in Muleshoe, Texas, and was her, her stuff was always uh, well uh, recognized as good stuff. And she was a historian of a sort herself. She set up a heritage center there. And so she wrote about that a lot. And she also wrote a, a biography of herself, actually, didn't she? And, uh, and that was published. Self-published. Self-published, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. It's not a New York Times bestseller or anything. Not yet, yeah. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did that when Livia was uh, little and just wrote my thesis there. And it, was, it turned out to be published in the local newspaper. So that's uh, that's what we do in our family is sit around and write. Exciting. <laughs> We're an exciting well, bunch. <laughs> kind of a question for both of you then is, do you think, because for our listeners, Olivia is one of four kids. And so, and all four mm-hmm. of you are very creative and driven and ambitious and do a lot of things. Do you think it was growing up watching your dad doing this and watching your mom working hard or what do you think? Definitely for me, when I think about the fact that my dad I mean, this is like a very high risk activity that my dad did when I was in uh, junior high, you know, to walk away. You've got four kids and you walk away from your job and then you you follow this dream like this is insane. I can't say that I was always the most supportive of the kids. (laughs) But at the same time, like I think it gave me something where it's hard for me to feel like I'm definitely trapped because like my dad walked away from even much more like objectively difficult situation you know like in theory anyone can walk away from their day job if they if that's what they really feel that they need to do or that they should do so I think that's good because you know it sets a different type of example and yeah I'm sure being around like people who are writing stuff all the time uh, also gives you a different perspective like you know it just put you know it makes you think that writing is like a way to be part of a community or something mm-hmm. as well so that's kind of what I think I don't know dad what do you think uh, yeah I think that's a uh, I think that's a great perspective it was a very hard hard thing to do to walk away from a uh, from a good job we uh, we prayed a lot about it and uh, just felt that this was uh, this was a way to go I was fortunate that I was able to uh, remain active in the Marine Corps Reserve as a supplementary income. So it was times of uh, austerity, you might say, in the family. But uh, <laughs> it was, uh, I think a lot of us learned that you can accomplish things maybe a little bit outside of the norm and what normal families do. And to uh, if you really feel that this is the way to go to best use your talents and abilities, it's something that's doable. And we... I have to admit that I have a great, great set of kids that I could have never stuck to it 
if uh, Olivia and her siblings had not done so remarkably well in school at at the same time that I was able to to focus on and not just in school but in all all sorts of all sorts of ways. In other words, they weren't getting in trouble like maybe a lot of kids do. That it gave me a sort of a comfort zone where I could continue my studies and uh, stick in there, and it uh, worked out worked out well. So in many ways, it was a family project and just one of those things what we did as a family. And my wife Martha. Uh, who is a foreign language teacher, uh, talk about creativity and uh, intellectual stimulation. Uh, she provided the bulk of it for the kids, I think. She was teaching school all during that time, and uh, they worked, the kids were exposed to that. She also tutored in our house, in the home, even when the kids were younger. Before I undertook my uh, studies in history, she was tutoring high schools and junior students in Spanish and sometimes French in our homes and so the kids were aware of that too and I think even though they have a a natural ability for languages they saw too that that's something that's important and something you could pursue that would be beneficial so three of our four kids have uh, great language skills Mm -hmm. and uh, the fourth one is like me he does not have much interest in foreign language (laughs) so I don't yeah it was uh, interesting times yeah. I like to hear about how, how these kinds of projects become family projects. And yeah, I have mem- yeah. memories of my mom in graduate school, too, and spending a lot of time in the university library and helping her with the microfilm machine because she gets motion sick. And, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's it's good. For, that's sort of been my approach with my kids is that it's good for them to be exposed to it and be kind of a part of it so it's nice to hear here's some validation of that (laughs) absolutely right yeah and I read my dad's thesis eventually your PhD dissertation and your thesis I think but definitely your PhD dissertation like eventually because I was eventually old enough to like provide Mm. some value after Mm -hmm. I'd worked on the newspaper (laughs) and stuff like that so yeah one of the things I was curious about dad is I think I was just thinking about this while you were talking and about grandmother and sort of writing as a way of being part of a community like is that how do you view your writing like what are you trying to achieve with your writing either either at work or outside of work or whatever what do what do you think you're trying to achieve and do you think you got that from your mom I think so because she She's a journalist. Like I said, a lot of her writing is write-ups of community activities or her work with the Heritage Center. So I think I'm uh, similar in that regard. By doing oral history interviews, you talk to Marines with first-hand accounts of real-life events. And so there's a natural inclination as far as I'm concerned. And I I see this pattern in other people that do oral history interviews. They want to write it up and tell the bigger world about this event and these experiences because in many cases are they're mostly uh they're really good news stories even though you might be talking about combat which in itself is an ugly event but the actions involved and uh, personal bravery or just personal initiative to uh, overcome difficult situations or it doesn't have to be about combat. It could be maybe about developing development of some new product or some new way of doing something even, or how you do better training. Any of those those things are and can be inspirational, and you want to you want to tell a bigger you want to tell a bigger audience about it. 
So uh, I've been often encouraged to just go out and write. So I've written uh, several articles just based on uh, maybe one or two interviews that I did. And uh, really, you get down to sort of the grassroots perspective of, in my case, military operations. It doesn't have to be military if you're involved in doing oral history interviews, depending on who you're talking to. In my case, it's, uh, it's military operations at the grassroots level, at the personal level. And it's really, it's just fascinating because especially uh, when you start talking about combat, it's a, it's a unique environment. So it's interesting to study or to learn about how people react in that type of environment. That's, there's nothing like it in the world. So yeah, so I do a lot of, uh, I'm encouraged to do a lot of writing in that regard. Any other writing that I do, I like to pull in a lot of personal narratives to sort of emphasize a point that's being made and that's what that's what oral history is oral history is good for us for bringing in that personal that personal experience i'm fortunate to uh, to have the job that i have i've been told a hundred times that i've got the best job in the world mm-hmm. i mean that's kind of what we do that's one of the things that i've really enjoyed um since olivia and i started this podcast project is just being able to listen to other people talk about a subject that's interesting to both of us or all of us yeah so what are you working on now, Dad? As far as current writing projects go uh, that I'm working on at home, uh, a couple, one of and they're both, one of them is uh, my dissertation that I'm uh, working on getting it published. And of course, it's uh, being a dissertation, what it is, it's hard to, um, it's hard to shape it into something that's maybe of more popular interest, or even in my case, to cut it down to a manageable size. And then another project that I'm working on is a derivative of something that uh, I was working on at work also that I decided is worth publishing. So um, these are both fairly good sized books. So getting uh, getting to work on those at home can be difficult, especially in my case, because I'm often dealing in the same subject matter at home that I do at work. And you might say, well, that's good, you know, because you stay in the same the same frame of mind, the same sort of the same uh, genre. But it's really hard because by the time you spend eight, 10, 12 hours at work dealing with a topic, similar topics, you're really ready to do something else altogether. So to work on these projects, I, uh, I think it would be best if I had some dedicated time set away from work. Maybe vacation time would be best. So what is this new book you're writing? I don't know anything about it. Well, actually two books. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually, and now that, you see where I get it from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I've got, uh, I can't, uh, they're both having to do with military aviation, and in particular U.S. Marine Corps aviation. One of them is uh, involves Marine Corps aviation, World War II, through the Korean War. And then the other one deals with Marine Corps aviation after Vietnam down to the present day. And that is actually a huge book. I did a lot of that work on the job, the research for it and whatnot. And for whatever reasons, there was a uh, delay in publishing it by the organization I work for. So uh, I'm pressing forward to uh, publish it on my own. And but it's um, it's a it's a big task. I got it finished through uh, about 2012, and I have not worked on it since 2012. So well, guess what? Six years have trans- transpired since then. So I submitted it for publication, and a publisher said, 
Well, I thought you said it was modern marine aviation. And I said, well, yeah, it goes down to 2012. They said, well, if it's going to be modern marine aviation, it needs to be down to 2018. And it was already a 190,000-word book. And so it's, it's going to take some shaping and cutting, which is probably the hardest thing a writer can do is to cut down a project. But then, uh, of course, the research involved in going from 2012 to uh, 2018. I mean, the world doesn't stop if you're gonna if you're gonna talk about modern anything. You need to, but of course, it will stop at some point. But uh, yeah, that something like that takes a lot uh, a lot of time and a lot a lot of a lot of effort to uh, do after work. So uh, we'll have to see about that. Maybe uh, I hate to say this word. Maybe after retirement, but uh, who knows. <laughs> I Who love knows? hearing your mom laugh in the background. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still we got an audio live live studio. Audience. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm still a very young man. So uh, who's thinking about retirement? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Megan's in the middle of trying to cut her book as yes. well right now. Uh, yeah, ugly business. It's not easy. It's an ugly business. It is. It is. I found that right now I'm just working from a set of, I've just created a set of kind of inflexible rules for myself. And I say, I'm not allowed to have this kind of thing in it at all. And then I may find loopholes and I may not, but it is helping. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So, right. but it's fiction. So it's a little different. But do you have certain things that you like, certain tricks or things that you, maybe little rituals or processes that you've developed over the years to help? you find time and to get in the right mindset and to maybe do these do these things that you've talked about Mm -hmm. accomplish these edits and things i don't know if they're uh, rituals or uh, what but uh, routines maybe yeah i um i guess just say uh i'll wait for a um an inner spark you really have to have sort of an inner spark and the ability to sort of visualize the product and what it's what you're aiming to do in a nice neat package and sort of the the main points that you want to get across you need to visualize that in other words you just can't go wandering off into the uh into the wilderness <laughs> of writing but an inspiration that you get to uh that to do it and then to jump into it so i guess that's something that uh, writers have is this uh you get this spark and desire to put this down on paper so to wait for that and not to waste it when it comes mm. Not let it go by without uh, actualizing it is a key thing. So that's uh, that's the main thing. And then uh, plan <clears throat> plan a uh, schedule where you will you can get a, a day or two here. Like uh, I frequently have three day weekends, so uh, to be able to devote uh, one of those days to writing. And really, I found that you need you need a good length of time to get into the groove of the uh, writing and not five or ten minute or half hour bursts. Although sometimes that is productive, but usually, usually not. And so it's a lot of false starts if you do that, I think. But you need some continuity and some dedicated time. So I try to uh, plan vacations or weekends where I have some of that time. But really, you have to decide that you are going to finish it. That this is not something that's going to go on forever. And really, the time is now to finish it. Uh, you can deceive yourself into thinking by putting it off that uh, you'll have more time in the future. But if you've got not time to do it now, and it's in your heart and in your gut to do it, you uh, 
you should sit down and and finish it up, crank it out. Do you think that you learned that the hard way? Like, I remember it was hard for you to finish your PhD dissertation, yeah? So do you think these are lessons that you learned from that? Or, like, how'd you learn all that? Yeah, yeah. Again, you have to decide, really, you have to commit yourself that you're going to do it. I don't know. I think in the... Uh, terms of uh, military aviation, uh, great fighter pilots, the fighter pilots that shoot down enemy airplanes. A lot of a lot of fighter pilots go up against enemy air, enemy planes for one reason or another. They have a come up with a reason why they don't why they don't. It's dangerous for one thing, but the the great fighter pilots decide that no matter what, they're not going to turn back. They're not going to they're, they're going to engage this guy and and shoot him down. So I think in the same way, as far as writing goes, you, you have to uh, hang in there with all determination to see it through to a conclusion. That's kind of what I did with my Ph.D. dissertation is uh, work at night. After, that's when I first started my job that I have now. And it was not easy because we lived in a small house which is all we could afford in Virginia at the time. It really didn't have a place to write, dedicated place to write good quiet space except for the basement an unfinished basement and it was like full of spiders and uh (laughs) damp but anyway i would go down there and that's where i finished my dissertation and (laughs) no distractions (laughs) no no you didn't pay attention to them anyway (laughs) but uh, yeah you just have to be determined you know that it's something that uh, can be done and that uh that you're gonna do it you're gonna hang on until it's in the bag. No, that's the good. That's a good pep talk. You're gonna white knuckle it through. You'll get there. <laughs> yeah, and think of your writing as the enemy. <laughs> it's the other plane you gotta shoot down. Sometimes yeah, it is. Yeah, I guess I. I have a uh, a lot of my analogies come from a military. Uh, sort of a military viewpoint of uh, how things work. Yep. I think we can end on that. Yeah, I think so, unless uh, your dad's got something else to add. No, I don't. I have, uh, I've been blessed with lots of, uh, lots of opportunities and just great inspiration and uh, encouragement as I've gone along to continue on in writing. And uh, writing's, boy, it's something that's, it's a very difficult thing to do. So the worst thing in the world is to uh, face that blank computer screen and get started but it's neat when those uh, words start coming to your mind and those uh, concepts and that vision it's uh, no better feeling in the world so that's about all i've got so i thank you thank you for the chance to talk about something here that i uh that I dearly love. Thanks, yeah, Dad. Thanks. thanks for coming and being a special guest on our podcast. And it's been a great to have the uh, four kids that I have, that they uh, constantly amaze me with their accomplishments and what great people they are and turning out to be and growing up. But uh, yeah, they're, still, uh, they're still like little uh, little kids to me. <laughs> and uh, see them mature. And, so and I'm just like recording my old... My old, I used to record all kinds of things on tape recorders. Yeah, yeah we, still have, <laughs> we still have some of Olivia's Christmas programs. <laughs> that will never be on the podcast. No, those are going to be great. And her brother's rebellion against them. I'll, I'll email you my mailing address and you can send them to oh, me yes. secretly. Yeah. Special marginally great, podcast uh, Christmas. Subterfuge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um all right well all right. thanks dad 
Yeah, thanks. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Scotty Kaudinkaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, yep. <laughs> Megan and I often say, uh, yep. <laughs> We've been listening to somebody for a while. Yep. <laughs>